and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're speaking with Westworld creators Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy about the show's entire first season. Plus, we're joined by Variety's chief television critic, Maureen Ryan, to give you our take on it. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hi, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, Gazelle and Matt. So we're going to get to talking about Westworld in just a minute. But first, it's time for this week's prompt. Oh, here <laughs> we go. Are you guys ready? Here we go. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to be prompted. All right. Well, so, so last week we talked about our TV versions of comfort food. This week, our producers ask us, considering the collision of genres in Westworld, what is your favorite mashup of genres in a TV series or episode? That's a rough one. That's a rough one. There's so many. It's rough because there's so many great TV shows that uh, that, that, that are basically more than one genre. But I guess I, I guess if I'm going to be like historically minded, I would have to say uh, the Night Stalker. The Night Stalker. Stalker. Yeah, which was a detective show and it was a Monster of the Week show. It was an anthology, like a Monster of the Week anthology show. And Darren McGavin would, you know, he was a newspaper reporter who was uh, trying to uncover these mysterious crimes, which inevitably turned out to be perpetrated by some horrible monster, (laughs) like a vampire or an ancient, you know, 100 year old blood sucking creature or a knight who had come to life or something like that. And uh, of course, it was a big influence on the X Files, which was part detective story, part horror movie, part 1970s paranoid conspiracy, and a bunch of other things. Sounds awesome. Oh, that's a good answer. <laughs> uh, Jen? Uh, well, I had two that popped into my head immediately. Um, one is um, just because I feel like I should mention moonlighting as frequently as possible. So I'll say moonlighting because yeah. it's <laughs> a mystery, romance, comedy, and then often had these you know, weird episodes that were Shakespearean comedies and and just doing all kinds of other things. Uh, And then just in terms of an episode, I'm always a sucker for when a show does just a musical episode when it's not traditionally a musical show. And obviously people talk about Buffy as being sort of the best of of all of those. But I wanted to put in a plug for this community episode called Regional Holiday Music. And maybe we'll talk about it again (laughs) if we talk about Christmas episodes. But uh, I remember just really enjoying that one. There's a song in that called Baby Boomer Santa that absolutely cracked me up the first time I saw it. Um, So whenever somebody does a musical one and they do it really well and it's somewhat unexpected, I always enjoy that. Community was a a genre mashup factory. I love that show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go with something that I loved as a kid which was Briscoe County Jr., The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. It's a fun show, yeah. It's such a fun (laughs) show. I watched it every Friday night, uh, back-to-back with Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, I believe. It's a mashup. That's a hell of a Friday. It was pretty great. These were good days. (laughs) Uh, Good days for television. Um, You know, like Westworld, it's a Western sci-fi, and it takes place in the late 1800s in the American Old West. I, you know, I'm, I'm not super clear on the plot details on this show, but there's an all-powerful orb that transforms anyone who touches it. And it, you know, it predates Prestige TV, and it's just really goofy and fun and funny. I think you can only get it on DVD, unfortunately, but it's out there. And then now also— you mentioned it. It'll hmm. be on streaming. Yeah. You mentioned it. If the streaming gods are listening. Um, and then more recently, a show we've talked about on this show, Search Party, yeah. which yeah. I think is just, you know, we've, we all think it's great. It's kind of skewers millennial culture, but it's also a detective mystery show, and it's also a show about a woman's path to self-discovery or having an identity crisis. But I think what I like most about it is how it kind of skewers all the tropes of a show like Westworld, where you have this mystery that's super serious, but uh, Search Party kind of flies in the face of all of that a little they have bit. To, they have to keep reminding themselves to take it seriously. Yeah. <laughs> like they're easily distracted. Yeah. <laughs> and that's an example of a show where there's there's a twist, and because it's doing so many different things, I wasn't so concerned about what the twist was going to be or whether there would be one, and it completely the finale completely surprised me in terms of the direction it went in. Yeah, it somehow undermines the whole thing and also underlines the themes of the show much more strongly. You know, it's interesting to me that there's been so much genre mashup in the last 20 years of TV, 25, that uh, when a show is only an example of one thing, it tends to stand out. Like, it tends to even seem a little weird. Mm -hmm. Like, I was thinking of uh, Hell on Wheels, 
the AMC Western, mm. which is uh, a Western. That's all it is. You know, th- then there's not really any shows like that. It's this meets that is like the way to pitch almost everything now. Yeah. But what if what well, if there's nothing I mean, to meet? <laughs> <laughs> Some of the more procedural stuff on CBS, like A Criminal Minds or something, like I don't feel like that's that's doing true. Too many right. Different things. That's you know? true. Yeah, I mean, I think it's usually shows that aren't necessarily as prestige. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just they are what they are. That's true, yeah. and that's okay. And they have a lot of viewers. <laughs> they, they do. More than <laughs> they do. The shows we're talking about. <laughs> Santa Claus was born in 1945. He had a boogie woogie Coca-Cola army. And when the Connies gave the polio to Doris Day, Santa helped the Beatles chase McCarthy away. That baby boomer Santa, she's never gonna die. All right, so that is this week's prompt. Listeners, if you'd like to weigh in on this week's prompt, or if you'd like to suggest a prompt for a future week, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. Next up, we're joined by TV critic Maureen Ryan to talk about the Westworld finale. But first, a word from our sponsors. Santa invented Spielberg and microchips. Santa invented Coca-Cola and the robot. So... Westworld was arguably the most popular show of this fall, and it aired its 90-minute finale Sunday night. And we're very happy to have Variety TV critic Maureen Ryan joining us today to discuss the show's first season. Maureen, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I think we've all had pretty mixed feelings on this show over the course of its first season, and just wanted to start off by getting a sense of what you all thought of this of this finale the sideshow bob stepping on one, <laughs> on the rake <laughs> well one of my feelings is like i don't want to be the the rainer on the parade you know but i I, cause I think that there are people who really really enjoy it enjoy the conspiracy theory aspect of it the puzzle aspect of it i just um i never really vibed with that part of it. I mean, I certainly, I would sort of think about those aspects of it, but it was never really a a draw for me. I've I've been very frustrated this entire year. I, I just turned in my top 10 list for the year. It was very, very difficult narrowing it down to 10. It's always hard, but this year it was especially hard because there were so many really, really interesting scripted shows to choose from. And uh, and I did mention Westworld and Mr. Robot in my introduction. They did not make my list, but I said that I appreciated them for having failures that are more interesting than other shows' successes, and I still stand by that. I've certainly thought about Westworld and Mr. Robot more often than I've I've thought about a lot of other series that are more consistent from episode to episode. But that said, I wish there were a little more drama with the ambition. And like, yes, I admire it as this kind of clockwork piece of machinery, but Oh God! A lot of the a lot of the emotion, a lot of the feeling came from those marvelous actors, and not necessarily from anything innate to any of the situations they found themselves in. And I also found the the uh, the misdirection, the feints, the red herrings, the the big reveals, the plot twists, all of that stuff to be just like a sidelight. Like I'm not interested in that. Like if this is a buffet line, this is the stuff on the buffet table that I'm never going to pick up. And I think other people are saying that too, though. Um, so I don't think it's just you. I mean, I wrote something before the finale about how I just had such a hard time emotionally engaging with the show. And, and I think some of it is, has to do with the character development. And I still feel that way after seeing the finale. I will say there were some moments in the finale that were more kind of viscerally exciting than a lot of the other moments throughout the season. Like the whole big scene where um, Armistice and Hector wake up and they start attacking their Westworld technicians, just the whole way that was choreographed. I was like, wow, that's quite a scene. Uh, and it was kind of exciting and interesting to watch that. I thought it was interesting that they had a stinger at the end because that felt very Marvel movie-ish a little bit. Um, but my problem is like the actual act of caring about what's happening <laughs> just isn't isn't there. Like I, I, I admire it. I admire it, but I don't enjoy it. As to the act of caring, though, one one thing that really nagged at me is that scene you're talking about, Jen, where the where the yeah. where the robots are going on the rampage in the lab. That would be an amazing, awesome, cool scene if they if they really had anything to do with it. Time and time again, particularly in Thandie Newton's storyline, we had moments where we thought the characters were appear, uh, experiencing awakening, 
self-consciousness, autonomy that were willed from within, that was something that was happening within them, only we find out that it was because somebody altered a line of code. And that's interesting in a sort of abstract sense to me, like, and especially insofar as it outsmarts the people who want to outsmart the show. It's like, oh, well, there's actually a programmer who is doing this. Well, that's cool, but... It's not emotionally satisfying to me. It's not, and it's certainly not as interesting as as the plot line of the movie Ex Machina, which uh, mm-hmm. I think has a lot in common with this this new incarnation of Westworld, which I think is a vastly superior intellectually and emotionally take on some of the same themes. And I actually think, from a mystery perspective, like you know, I read a ton of fiction, and one of my favorite favorite things to read is a mystery novel that has a lot of psychological components and is much more about somatic elements to do with, you know, suffering or loss or um, dislocation in society, that kind of thing. Like, you know, the work of Tana French or um, Denise Mina or Laura Lipman. Like, I think there's a lot of great novelists right now, like Kate Atkinson, that do a lot of really interesting work in this arena. And I just don't even think, from a mystery perspective, I don't feel like they played fair. Like, let's just take one example Dolores is actually Wyatt. Okay, well, that's an interesting idea, but you made me feel a little irritated by that last one because you showed a guy as Wyatt. You showed a man walking down the street and said, well, when we were in, I was with Wyatt and we did X and Y and he did this. You were like, that just felt like kind of a, a very late in the game rabbit out of the hat. And I think that there's that element too with, with what you're saying, Matt, about the kind of the mastermind of it all, which to me was like, oh, well, there's always another layer where someone's just controlling that person. So I feel like it kind of, in a way, encouraged me to check out on the characters because I didn't ever know how much of their autonomy was real or how much of their selves was real or how much of their memory was real. And I don't have a thing against multiple timelines in theory, but as the show functioned here, I just felt like it was constantly just trying to get you to the point where it could pull the rug out from under you or where you thought they might. There was just a disconnect between, as you say, the ambition of the show to explore these themes about autonomy and consciousness and connection and how those things all relate to each other and and where it actually came down with the choices that were kind of either conventional or just kind of distancing. I even felt a sense of distance in, in what should have been kind of one of the meat and potatoes aspects of the show, which is the, the action scenes. The action scenes were often staged in a very clever way, very imaginative way. They A lot of them were not shot in a conventional TV way where it's cut, cut, cut. Like they put a lot of thought into the camera placement and, and what we're looking at and why. But ultimately, if no robot can harm a visitor to the park, then why are these action sequences as elaborate as something out of a Hitchcock movie or a Coen Brothers movie? I have not enjoyed this show throughout its first season, but... I think the finale was the closest the show got to what I wished it would just be, which is a show without themes that are particularly smart and that just accepts itself as a show that's purely a form of entertainment and action. And, you know, I think it can be fun when it lets itself have some fun. And I think the problem with the finale that I had was that it was still too on the nose with its themes, even more so. I mean, when you were having Anthony Hopkins try to explain consciousness with a photo of Adam, (laughs) the creation of Adam, you know, those things kind of, but I think I got to the point where in the finale, I was kind of finally able to turn my brain off and just watch it. And I was like, happy with that in a weird way, even though that's not the, my preferred form of entertainment, which again, isn't an endorsement of it, but I just felt like for me, it was a slightly better viewing experience, even though I didn't like how it treated the themes that it tries to treat. With I depth. consistently enjoyed the show more when I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I, I, I'll cop to that. I will totally cop to that. Like where it was just like, oh, you know, in fact, I, my roommate uh, who watches the show with me, he says every time we would turn on a new episode of the show, there'd often be a scene that was repeated or partially repeated or played again. Like you think you're seeing the same scene again that you've seen before, but if something right. is a little different about it. That's very cool. That's very cool. And my roommate commented, uh, he said, every single time I sit down to watch this show, I think maybe I'm ac- I've accidentally pulled up last week's episode. <laughs> and that's sort of baked into the show. That is funny. Like, right. that is funny, and that never fails to amuse me. But I think I could be okay with that if it were a movie. But, like, I've given 10 hours of my life right. to this now. Well, I am curious what you all think about, 
you know, I, I'm assuming all of us have been pretty up on all the all the theories <coughs> that, you know, Bernard is Arnold and the man in black is William. And we kind of saw these things coming. But when I was watching Twitter last night, a lot of people seemed legitimately surprised by these twists. Like these were completely unexpected to them. Do you think that the show could work on that purely mystery level if we hadn't been dissecting it the way that we had? I think it would work a lot better if they dumped all the episodes at once. I think it would completely, like, I Mm. I actually had this thought last night as I was watching it. If this were a show where they dumped the entire season at once, nobody would have one syllable to say about how predictable the show is. It's the fact that we have a week to think about this stuff. and, And if this were a show that didn't care about outsmarting the audience that didn't actively bait the audience in the way that this show does. Like, they really take pride in when they've outsmarted the audience, and I think they did in the finale. I think they legitimately did. But is that the kind of victory that a dramatist really wants to have? I don't know. Like, I think if you're going to make this kind of show, you're better off doing it for Netflix or Hulu or somewhere where this, this is not an issue and people can really just respond to it and they're not sitting there crowdsourcing it and going over it like it's, you know, SurvivorSucks.com in the, in the mid-aughts. You know, I felt like with every beat of the finale, I saw it coming. I was doing a running commentary in my head or out loud saying, oh, Ford did all of this. Like, they, the show, I find, tends to telegraph things a lot, and that's different from foregrounding. That's different from dropping breadcrumbs or clues. Sometimes it does that, too, but I think it actually, you know, it over-expositions so much yeah. that, you know, I, I felt at certain points I was being hit in the head with the obvious stick, and I just... <laughs> You know, I felt, I felt like there's not a, a ton of a sense of discovery with the show. You know, like I'm not discovering who these people are because they relentlessly are telling me who they are. I'll tell you right now that my favorite part of the finale, bar none, was when um, one of the two techs, I don't know if he's Felix or Sylvester, Maeve says, oh, he has a, you know, a lying face or a shifty face, and he just goes, that's just my face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. I laughed out loud, and I think... I think a lot of prestige-hungry dramas forget how funny Breaking Bad could be. Yeah. You know, how hilarious mm-hmm. Mad Men was at times. The Sopranos. I mean, I <laughs> it's really, really um, intense. You know, the, the Westfield was very intent on what it was trying to do to the point where I think it was just very control-freaky about how it doled this stuff out, but that could ultimately mean that you felt really closed off. But I think in, in a larger sense, just looking at it from a big picture thing, I had a problem with what Westworld said about either humanity or humanity as alternative or artificial life forms come at it. Suffering and violence and bitterness and anger, those are all parts of life for sure. But I guess I find that Westworld, I think, kind of buys into something I see across the prestige landscape or the drama landscape where I feel like that that's kind of just a go-to thing. And I don't, I think it's just reductive. I don't actually think that people only become human through suffering. And maybe, maybe the show is just saying, Oh, we'll just Ford thinks that, but it resorts to violence so often. And the man in black became so bitter and so unhinged that, you know, it, it just seemed to be quite, a, a, a message that just felt um, limited. There's also an undertone, uh, like I think maybe related to that, is this idea that I heard articulated by many different characters on the show that I don't know if they ever quite came out and proclaimed this to be a universal truth, but this idea that left to our own devices, we will beat, rape, kill, set things on fire, we'll, right. be, we'll be animals. I don't know that. I don't know that I believe that. I think that people will take particular liberties in an apocalyptic or non-monitored situation that they might not take if they knew they were being watched. But that's not the same thing. I think this is talking about something innate. And one thing they never did, and I know, I know, I know, that's not the point of the show to explain this stuff, but I still wanted them to get into it. What makes this park appealing? And I don't just mean the violence. I don't just mean this being kind of a dirty, nihilistic fantasy island where you can go do whatever the hell you want and be evil. But I mean, like, why is this fantasy of the American West in the 1880s where if you weren't white or straight, you were basically property or material popular again? Like when the original movie Westworld came out in 1973, 
part of the concept of it was that this was a theme park because the ideas no longer had any immediate mythological currency anymore. And it was funny. Like, there was no, it was almost a jokiness to it. Matt, if I gave you a hundred grand and said, I'm going to give you a hundred grand cash, it's yours to do with, you just have to go on a trip. I think that a lot of people, given that amount of money, I mean, maybe they go to Vegas and just go completely haywire for two weeks <laughs> or a month or whatever. But I, I mean, like, I think a lot of people think, oh, cool, I'm going to go to Machu Picchu or I'm going to go, like, tour the Loire Valley or, you know what I mean? I think people would want experiences for sure. Some of those would be sexual. Some of those would be just, you know, get drunk, do drugs, whatever. But there seemed to be this repetitive notion, as you say, uh, Tessa Thompson's character repeats it. People just want a simple narrative. They just want to have sex. They just want to get drunk. They just want to, like, do these things that we see people doing now and again. I do think some people want to do that. It just seemed like a limited way to view how human beings actually operate in the world. The people who are bringing us into this world are already people we can't really relate to because it's these this rich class of people who gets their kicks from going to this type of world. Right. And you can't really relate to on a human level and then you have these robot hosts who aren't <laughs> su- aren't really human where I mean if they had at least taken the the hosts closer to consciousness a little bit. I understand the limits of this narrative where, you know, these people aren't human, so Right. It's difficult to develop them, but I I do think it's still possible if you're imagining it a world where as the, where they're gaining consciousness that you could develop relationships between them and the people around them that are emotional and make high cre- make the stakes higher because of that emotion. At some point, maybe could we pivot to Battlestar Galactica? Because I keep thinking, like every time I watch a show, I think about how much more I liked Battlestar Galactica, which dealt with so many of the same issues. Of the dramas of the aughts, I think that's my favorite, and I think. One scene I keep going back to in my mind, and I don't know why, is there's a scene where Sharon and Adama are just sitting down. She's been a prisoner. She's obviously one of the Cylon characters, and Adama's the leader of the ragtag fleet. And it was later in the show's run, but at some point they're just sitting down. Maybe it's in her cell. Maybe it's somewhere else. But they're just having a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And they're just talking. And I think, like, that's... To me, that's what Battlestar did so well, was get me invested in those people as individuals. And then, as you say, Gazelle, in their relationships, the characters felt so rich and so fully realized that any time they were in conflict or made a connection, it felt like it had weight behind it. I think Matt made a really good point earlier, um, talking about how we don't have a, a sense of why people come to Westworld, really. Like, we never, we never have a sense of the wider world beyond this Westworld construct, other than what people might say, but we never really see it. And, you know, to use another show that is compared to Westworld a lot, which is Lost, we are constantly being told in the first season of that show, like, what happened to people before they got to the island? And we start investing in those characters, and we have a sense of why they ended up in this place, which is a a different form of escape. Yeah, and a context for their actions. And obviously in Westworld, they're escaping by choice as opposed to by random fate or whatever you want to call it and lost. But nevertheless, like, I feel like it's important to understand how did these people get here? Why, why, what is the appeal? Why do they keep coming there? The story doesn't feel grounded um, for that reason to me. Is there any storyline that you maybe liked more than, more than others? I liked any scene with Jeffrey Wright in it. Yeah. I kind of, I almost didn't even care what was happening in the scene. I liked <laughs> him so, so much. I think he's great. He's just great. Hello, Dolores. Hello. Welcome to the world. I loved his performance, and I loved all the different modes of his performance. I liked all the actors on the show, but I, t- I tend to think of their scenes in terms of the actors and not the characters, which I think is telling. Like James mm-hmm. Marsden, I, I found myself appreciating James Marsden all over again and appreciating how, how underappreciated James Marsden is, uh, which is something that Angelica Bastien wrote about for Vulture uh, this week. Even Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins was kind of playing like it just seemed like, hey, this part is one big exposition dump. Who can we get who's going to make that interesting? And let's see if Anthony Hopkins is A, available and B, affordable. Grief is a terrible thing. Arnold had watched his son come into this world. Then he'd watched that light extinguished. What he had lost in his son, he tried to rekindle in you. He created a test 
of empathy, imagination, amaze. He'd gotten the idea from one of his son's toys. I was just frustrated by how the stories developed. Like, I was really into um, Maeve's Mm -hmm. uh, uh, story. That was probably altogether my favorite story, especially once it became clear to me that Evan Rachel Wood's character, uh, Dolores, acted out, rebelled 30 years ago, and then in the present-day scenes, she was, like, more of a prairie gal. Yeah, like I was a, like pretty a, bored by her story. I was kind of bored by that. And I thought, like, well, that sucks that she's kind of regressed in terms of her human, quote-unquote, human potential. So I thought Maeve was going to give me that, but then it turns out she's just operating according to her well, programming, too. All that programming stuff just ruined a lot of my ruining interest, and I know that the people who write the show don't care about that, nor should they, but I'm just saying it. I also wish they would at least, like, just get into it if you're going to get into it like with Maeve potent you know being not actually in control of her own decisions like they kind of bring that up and then they just kind of drop it although are, do you think we're supposed to think at the end that she leaves for her kid because she, she wanted to or because well I don't like, know if it even matters at that point right I mean it, it leaves you in a position where all their decisions are such that you're questioning whether it's their choice or not so you're not able to even know how to feel about it yeah I keep coming back to Ex Machina again because it's just such a great movie, and I just I especially love the end of that. That movie's a slave rebellion story, just like Westworld, but I think it's much more clear in what it wants to say and how it says it. Yeah, my my actually my analog for Westworld is something that you will all laugh at, so get ready. Um, I'm a hardcore fan for Stars' version of Spartacus. And if you ever watch it, you have to watch it with the knowledge that I will tell you straight out of the gate that the first two episodes are not very good. <laughs> but yeah. I do think that that show had a very clear and um, concise control of its tone, which was batshit over the top melodrama. And it never, <laughs> it just, it, it owned that. You know what I mean? Like, it I felt yeah. like it was, it kind of was like Ugly Betty or Jane the Virgin or Breaking Bad in its own way. Like, it had a tone and it found it and it owned it. But it's the most politically incisive show about freedom and morality that I think I've ever seen, aside from Battlestar. It was about how oppressing a certain class of people or exploiting them consistently is a poison on a society that will eventually destroy it from within, whatever other accomplishments that society thinks it has created or made. And I'll also say that there was sexual violence in Spartacus, but it was always done with a particular purpose to explore that character's point of view. And I just think that Westworld, I just never quite could get a handle on what it wanted to say, and it felt like at certain points it wanted to say all the things, all the different ways, to all the characters, and I just, it just didn't, it didn't really have a grabbing on point. I mean, how many times did this show go to a place of, like, let's just kill them all? And so I would find it highly... Um, kind of irritating, but also a little bit hilarious when Ford would pontificate on what a good story would be. And the show kind of, I think, set Sizemore up to be like the crappy showrunner, like the, the hat. Oh, they totally did. They and, totally and, did. But the thing is, it's like, dude, don't drag on this guy being a hack when your own narrative resorts <laughs> to, like, let's just kill a whole bunch of bodies and put them on the ground. That's like, very true. Every episode, like, yeah. it, it, you can't sit there and moralize and judge about how, how narrative should work when your own is kind of falling into these ruts as well. You know, uh, just, see, but here, here's, here's one thing I would say sort of to, to, to just slightly contrary to that, which is one of the things that I really, really liked about the show based on the first whatever it was, three, four episodes that they sent out was how this to me seemed like the urtext of the so-called prestige drama, like the downbeat kind of prestige drama that, you know, it's about what it's about and it's also about itself. And then on top of that, it's about the appeal of this kind of show. So the whole like eating your cake and having it too, I was fine with that. And so it doesn't bother me when when Ford gets up there and pontificates about the need to tell a more sophisticated story than the one that Sizemore is telling. And then he delivers basically, you know, a more highfalutin version of the same thing. That's cool. I just wanted the show to... to wink at me a little bit to italicize that a little bit like like you know to be more meta i think i wanted the show to be, to more, be more self-aware be more like self-aware be more like like more a little more uh, you know a little bit less inception and a little bit more being john malkovich yeah this show very rarely had fun with what it was doing yeah, yeah I, I agree but i was gonna say and it's funny that you brought that up matt because one of the things i liked about it too was this idea that it was 
conscious, although maybe not having as much fun with it as it should have, of other narratives. Like, just in this conversation, think of how many other shows and books and things that we've referenced just in talking about it. And I found that when I was watching it, I would often think of other films, other shows, too. Like, for example, in the finale, there's that big scene where um, James Marsden is, uh, he's holding Dolores, and they pan, and, you, and they're by the ocean. And I just kept thinking, no, they're going to get into a boat, and they're going to sail off, and they're going to hit a wall. It's going to be like the Truman Show. Uh, which Ed Harris was in. Which Ed Harris was in, and he was the mastermind of it. And I, and the I, sun. I'm like, <laughs> right. And I'm like, they, they had to have cast him with that in mind on, on some level. Uh, I mean, the, the blessing of that is, like, it's cool to think about it in that context. Like, wow, it reminds me of this other movie, and that's kind of interesting with Ed Harris being in the show. The, the, the curse of it is I'd rather be watching the Truman Show right now because that wasn't really good. <laughs> so, Interestingly, um, Unreal, Unreal uh, I, I think also in its first season threatened to be that kind of show, and I think it kind of went off the rails. I think it took a little longer to go off the rails than Westworld did, but, but uh, yeah, you know, yeah. you, I think you could do a very fruitful comparison between Unreal and, and Westworld as sort of meta-narratives. You know, they're mm-hmm. sort of critiquing the thing that they are, but n- ultimately succumbing, I think, both of them. Right. Unreal just became, instead of having the, the, the layer of critique, it just ended up enacting those same tropes. Yeah, it became the thing it was satirizing. Yeah. And I guess there's a place for that kind of thing, too. Like, there's actually a rich and pretty proud tradition of the parody of the thing that is also an example of the thing being spoofed. Maybe my favorite example would be Galaxy Quest. Mm. Which yeah. is, you know, a send-up of Star Trek films that is also better than all but maybe two Star Trek films, actual ones. Um, and, but this wasn't, I don't think Westworld was that either. You have to be better, I right. guess. You, you got to be, yeah, you got to be good. You got to be really good. You got to yeah. be good at those base satisfactions. Yeah, and I mean, I think if, if, the, if the finale was going to do anything, I wanted it to make me excited about season two. But it didn't make me excited about season two because it just made me think... Well, when in doubt, they're just going to like resort to a kill them all strategy, or everyone, you know, starts shooting other people. And you know, the idea that oh, there are other worlds, like you know, East World, if you will, or you know, there's this <laughs> Japanese warriors level or what have you. I, I expected that, but that seems like fine if they expand the world. I don't have an issue with that, but. There was a joke tweet a few weeks ago. I, I wish I could remember who said it, but it's like, yeah, it's like a, a report to Ford. It's like, yeah, we, I think we got to do something. We're losing all of our business to sex world, which is like all the sex stuff, but without the robot shit. <laughs> and, the, and the Western stuff. It's like, you know, like they're like the next the next theme park over and they're taking all of the business away. <laughs> I actually, I think one of my favorite things about television is it, it, it's exploration of genre. I actually really love that. And I really think that it's a subversive vehicle for storytelling. And, and prestige is yet another genre. So here we have this really interesting and ambitious, with a high degree of difficulty, attempt at combining um, the mythology of the Old West and the meta-narrative of what does it mean to be you know, a, a television drama? What does it mean to be any kind of narrative? And how is that put together? And how is it manipulative? And how can sometimes even the manipulation make us feel things? Which, you know, that's really <laughs> what my job is. You know, I'm, I, I actually am in, I'm for that. Like, tr- go ahead, trick me, fool me, make me feel things. This was a show I definitely was rooting for, and there were moments when I felt like I got glimpses of what it could be. And, you know, I'll be in its corner saying I really hope it gets there next season. I think that this season was, you know, as a number of critics have pointed out, kind of a shakedown cruise for season two. And maybe they'll have a much more clear idea of how they can deepen um, the characters and the relationships and the thematic explorations, you know, in season two. If they can, I'm, I'm all for it. That's a good note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Mel. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this so much. We're going to take a quick break. The Vulture TV podcast will continue in a moment with showrunners Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. Jonathan and Lisa, thanks so much for talking to us today. We're, we're so excited to have you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having us. And we also have uh, Vulture's Abraham Reisman. Hi, guys. I wanted to start by just talking about the making of the finale because it's... It's such a huge production and such a stunning episode to watch. And I'm wondering, you know, if you could just talk about 
the logistics of it. You know, how many days went into this? How much of your budget was devoted to the finale? What what was most challenging? If you could just start by taking us through that process. Well, I think typically with uh, with the with the big with HBO shows uh, potentially. Uh, well, no, <laughs> I won't. It, it, it's always it's always tricky. I mean, the ninth episode often winds up being a big one in which lots of exciting stuff happens, or there's a battle, mm-hmm. and then the tenth one is the more kind of placid, um, you know, character based one. Uh, we didn't have that luxury here. We <laughs> we knew we were kicking off the the uh, the robot revolution here, uh, but we were also shooting episode nine with Michelle McLaren and episode eight with Steve Williams, kind of simultaneously. Um, so we really didn't have a great deal of extra time or money to throw at the finale. Um, it was really about careful planning, um, working with the unit. When we came back, you know, we had the backing of a, of a, of a legendary network that gave us the, the, the time to go out and write. You know, we got to the point in episode seven and eight where we were sort of, you know, down to the wire writing and producing at the same time not giving the actors and the crew and everyone enough time with the material. So we were able to step away, write the rest of the episodes, and then Lisa and I were able to re-engage as producers on 8 and 9 and as uh, with me directing on, on 10. But we were also able, with all the scripts in hand, and this is the way that we're going to do the second season, um, we were able to block shoot with the other units. So go into a location and shoot out. Uh, I think at one point uh, that, you know, the, the Wyatt massacre at one point had four directors standing <laughs> by the camera making sure that the pieces worked for uh, all four or five episodes they were going to be featured in. So it was a really a massive production. But with the finale, we really didn't have the opportunity to sort of privilege it in terms of extra time. We just mm-hmm. had to get in there and be judicious and careful. Uh, we had the benefit of working with an incredible crew and our unbelievable cast. Um, and they were all so excited and up for it that we were able to, to, to make it through. Um, you know, we also had the benefit of thinking for a long time about how we wanted to evolve the look and feeling of the show from the pilot to the finale. So it was a great experience. And one of the things that really uh, worked about the episode was how tightly paced it was. You know, it's a long episode, but right up until the end, it's it's quite white knuckle. How hard was it to edit this down? I mean, clearly you had a ton of material to work with. Was was this a, a special challenge to get down to exactly the streamlined narrative you needed? Well, not not so much. Um, I think the director's cut probably came in, you know, just a few minutes over, but there weren't really any scenes that we, uh, whole scenes that we cut out. It was really just about tightening. That, that's a process that I'm familiar with, with, with um, well, with, you know, over the course of broadcast television, that's par for the course. You've got to get down to 43 minutes. Everything that we work on tends to be a little bit bigger than the box it's supposed to fit into. And so we're always having to just shave away a little bit. But here we knew that we were pulling together all of, weaving together all of these disparate timelines and moments. Uh, and and uh, so from the beginning, from the script onwards, I think Lisa and I felt we had a lot of ground to cover, so you just hit the ground running and, and go for it. You mentioned that, you know, you were you were writing around, you know, episodes seven and eight. How late did the production go, I guess, in terms of, you know, were you writing up until close to the end of the season? And in terms of filming, like, how recently were these episodes shot? I mean, I think the way that it, the way that we tended to work was, you know, of course, before going and filming the pilot, Joan and I spent quite a bit of time mapping out the season and the mythology and then writing the script. And then we got to film it, which was a great joy because by the time we were filming, we were able to be there totally present in production with Jonah directing and myself producing. And then um, we went into um, the season with actually not that many scripts banked yet. We were kind of running from there, which is a, a little bit unusual for a production of, of the size that we were doing and the ambition that we were doing. And so we well, stayed... Well, the network had seen the pilot and really wanted us to be on the air as soon as possible. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were a victim of um, their excitement for it in a way. And so, <laughs> but, you know, it, it definitely... We were definitely um, writing furiously while then simultaneously also uh, being in production. And, and what happened was um, we got to a point, um, about episode eight, where we just needed to stop so we could write and catch up with the script. And, you know, we were, we were thrilled with everything we'd had so far, but we just, we just couldn't keep running and being in production in the same capacity. 
And we also wanted to make sure that we were embedding enough time for our actors with their performances really kind of crescendoing towards the end um, to, to have time with the material. And so, you know, what was one of the best luxuries of this was to be able to take some time to write the final few episodes together without being in production and to have that blessing and support from our studio network. And then after we did it, we were able to, you know, have all the scripts ready and go back into production, be 100% committed to being on set as producers for eight and nine and for Jonah directing 10. And it just rounded it out in the same way that we began it. And it was just a, an absolute creative joy that way. And I, and I hope actually it's something that we intend to pursue second season with writing them all first. Yeah, we try to make it like a regular TV show, which I've gotten accustomed to in broadcast terms, where you start writing and then you start shooting and you keep writing and you're doing nine things at once. And with this, this incredible cast who we brought on and have worked with us exclusively on the pilot, um, once we started production, we realized, no, we have to be on set and we have to be writing and we have to be doing all these sorts of things. Um, so as Lisa said, you know, it's not really a TV show. It's a little more like, not to draw the comparison again, <laughs> but in technical terms, it is a little more like Game of Thrones. Those guys have the drafts ready and they go off and they block shoot all the episodes with the directors moving around from unit to unit. Um, and so we will need to take an approach more like that in the second season. Speaking of of directing, uh, you know, Jonah, you directed this episode, and my personal favorite scene. People were talking a lot about you know pivotal philosophical moments, and those were really tremendous. But for me, the peak was the shootout mass murder stuff that we see from <laughs> <laughs> from Hector and Armistice. I think, I think that's a person. <laughs> yeah, it says a lot about me. But I wanted to know, uh, what do you remember from from directing those scenes? They're, they're such well done, uh, ultra violent action sequences. And uh, what, what do you remember from shooting that and planning it? Oh, thank you. You know, it, it, it was a great experience. A lot of planning because those sequences are actually shot on no fewer than, I think it's five separate locations. You have pieces in the L.A. Convention Center, pieces in the Pacific Design Center in West Hollywood, uh, pieces on stages, uh, you know, we're kind of all over the place with that sequence. Wow. But with a fantastic DP, Dave Franco shot the finale with me, our amazing crew um, and our amazing cast who were able to channel and keep that performance going uh, moment to moment. Uh, but yeah, those those were a thrill for me, and I don't know what this is about me. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> thrilling, thrilling to shoot and thrilling after 10 Ten episodes, and look, you know, in hindsight now, we're so lucky and so uh, grateful for the audience getting invested and hanging in there with the show. Evans described the first season as a bit of a, almost a prologue to the show. I, I, I would say, I think we would say more like a first act, uh, but certainly there's a slow burn aspect to the first season where we're really trying to get underneath the, you know, into the heads of these hosts. And then in the finale, we always knew we were going to kind of let her rip. Uh, and so it was incredibly gratifying, and I think it shows, for the host to finally get a hold of a real gun uh, or, a, or a, a, a machine gun, uh, conscious of the moment, and, and Die Hard, one of my favorite action movies, where he's, you know, Armistice has a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. Ho, 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 yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, and just see what, we, so, see what we could do right in time for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it really is a Christmas show at the end of the day, you know? <laughs> Jonah, you directed the pilot and the finale, and there are a lot of there's a lot of imagery that kind of reappears throughout, like the the shot of Dolores overhead, as one example. What were you thinking, you know, about what the running visual themes you wanted to be throughout the season? Without a doubt, I mean, look, the reality is there's an awful lot of ground to cover. It's ten and a half hours of content, uh, or you know, so you know, you'd be lying if you said that you were able to take the same extremely careful frame by frame uh, approach that you would with a feature. But I was actually incredibly gratified uh, that we were able to make, you know, make good on the things that we talked about with the pilot. We're shooting the pilot with Paul Cameron as a DP, Chris Harhoff is amazing steady cam operator uh, who, who did uh, Birdman, in fact, so one of the very best in the business. And with Paul and Chris standing on set in the pilot and talking about the way that we wanted the camera work to feel, for the first nine and a half episodes, right? 
that we wanted everything to be steady cam, that we wanted everything to be studio mode, that we wanted the, the camera to gently suggest in both movement and framing that it was siding with the hosts, that, that the camera almost felt like a host itself or the, the sort of the, you know, the, the sort of collective essence of all of the uh, hundreds or thousands of hosts who'd come and gone in this space. Um, gently anticipating the host's, uh, the host's movements so the camera kind of anticipates what Dolores is about to do, even if she doesn't know it herself, and just kind of very gently weaving that in. And then obviously the milk and the flies and the player piano and all these visual elements that Lisa and I talked about and then we talked about with, uh, with, with the incredible team on the pilot. And then being able to build that to fruition on the finale in terms of, you know, when Maeve gets onto that train, it's all, again, Steadicam is leading her over. It's now just keeping pace with her. She makes the decision. What we understand in the moment is actually the first real decision she's made all season, which is she's not going to fulfill the, the sort of the script that she's been given to take this train wherever it's going and do whatever else it is she's programmed to do. She so can get off the train, at which point we shift to handheld camera, which we'd held back on. Uh, throughout the entire season, up until one moment with her and one moment with Dolores, um, when when Teddy comes to rescue her, we get her off the off the train, Maeve off the train with a handheld camera, and I was I, I remember watching the dailies and almost being shocked at how effective uh, a, a cinematic technique can be if you hold off on it for long enough and then you dial it in in just the right moment that suggests that now she's literally like a train coming off the tracks. We're no longer in programmatic or uh, prescribed behaviors we're, we're she's improvising and we're, we're right there with her so there are a lot of things that we're incredibly excited to be able to to, to pay off from the beginning uh, to the end of the season I was excited to use the color red which I can't really see but my brother never <laughs> put in his movies <laughs> so it was you're, you're colorblind uh, ever so slightly. <laughs> so are many, many, many film directors. Twenty um, percent huh. of the American male population, uh, and some famous <laughs> filmmakers that I may or may not be related to. So it, there's a, there's a, um, it's uh, it, my relationship to color is uh, is complicated. Lisa, do you try to describe what colors look like to him? I do. It, it actually hit me while we were making this show one day. We were driving home, and it was time to hear. You know, I've, of course, known he was colorblind for a long time, but... Um, partially colorblind. Pa- partially colorblind, as he calls it, or color nuanced, as sometimes <laughs> he says it. Um, but um, I, he, he, was, he was talking about it, and he's like, I think it's really subtle, though. And, um, <laughs> and <laughs> that, that shows what colorblind people see. And for the first time, after, like, you know, 10 years of being together, I was like, oh, my gosh, Jonah, we live in different universes. <laughs> like, what, you see something totally different to me. And it's... it's it's actually quite beautiful. You know, it's one of the diagnosed and clear ways in which humans can be different um, and have their own perceptions totally, um, totally skewed from the outset, totally biased from the outset. And, and to see it just so integrated into our own lives while we're also working on a show about perceptions and the, and the lack of, you know, truly understanding your reality. What Jonah, what Jonah suggests that I can't see color properly, that he sees it more Yeah, what if he's just imagining all these dumb colors that I yeah. can't see? <laughs> he's a color, color elitist. <laughs> That's amazing. There's so many mysteries on this show. And that and we assume you're going to reveal all of them today on the podcast. Yeah. Just give us everything. <laughs> We're ready. Um, but, but no, like, a lot of the conversation has been around, you know, kind of that excitement of finding out these these kind of reveals and I'm, I'm curious when, you know, when you're writing it, how much are you thinking of it as a mystery show? You know, for me, it was, it was never a mystery show. It was always a show about the exploration of character and, you know, the lens with which, you know, I came to the characters were very much, you know, Dolores and Maeve's characters. And so there are lots of twists and turns in the narrative, but the reason that they're there tended to flow from an organic place, right? You know, this is about the differences between hosts and humans, between an artificial intelligence and, you know, people like us. And one of the fundamental differences is memory, as we talk about when we talk about the maze and the progression for for consciousness. And the reason why their memory is so different, and I can't even imagine the double-edged sword of this ability. But, you know, when, when you and I remember things, we have the kind of sumato lens of the past, right? You, you sometimes yearn to remember things more clearly, you know. Um, 
a beloved pet or a wonderful moment with someone. But they kind of slip away uh, because our minds can't hold on to things in perfect, perfect color. That's really helpful when it comes to loss or trauma or a bad experience. But it's sad when it comes to something golden. And the hosts have kind of the opposite problem, right, which is their memory is superhuman. They are able to construct an exact replica of every moment. And no wonder that seems a bit like madness, because if your past moment could be recalled with the same vivid color as the current one, how could you distinguish the two moments? And so we were really playing with that as a, as a character um, trait that these hosts would have and the way in which reconciling their relationship with memory was a fundamental part of achieving selfhood, was something we really enjoyed playing with. So, okay, I, I, I accept that. Um, that said, come on, on some level, you have to be worried that people are going to figure out that, say, William is the man in black, like, early on. I, I, I was astounded that people came up with that theory as early as they did. I was watching the show very closely and did not notice. Uh, but, you know, are you worried that people are going to figure that stuff out before you want them to figure it out? Well, you, you know, you, you think about it a little bit. I mean, I, I'm very accustomed to this. My whole career has been spent, you know, imagining the audience, frankly, wants more of a challenge. I remember we made Memento. Um, Chris shot it, had it in the can. People would come watch it. You know, st- studio executives would come watch it and be like, I loved it. It's great. We're not buying it. He'd be like, well, why not? He'd be like, because the audience won't have a fucking clue what's happening. <laughs> and, I'm, and we just thought, well, who, who the fuck are you? What makes you think you're smarter than the audience? We've always felt that the audience was very smart, extremely smart, and extremely bored with the shit that people would be putting in front of them, imagining that they were stupid or going through a, you know, a studio system or a network system that imagined people were stupid or taking ideas and throwing them away. So for us, it's fucking glorious to put something into the world that is layered with complexity and then have people gobble that up. In terms of trying to figure out when people are going to get a twist, look, my rule of thumb when, when you're working on a twist in a movie is you want about a third of the people to figure it out ahead of schedule. You want about a third of the audience to get it in the moment you drop, you know, you, you, you drop, you know, you put in the music cue and you drop the big <laughs> the bomb oh boy. And then you want about a third of them to have to have their spouse explain it to them on the way home. <laughs> right? Because you're never, you know, everyone watches things totally differently, right? Um, now there's a, there's a, a, you know, the emergent thing here. Uh, you know, sites like Reddit. I've been on Reddit for the better part of a decade. I was one of the fugitives from Gig when I kind of. <laughs> no, really? You were an early Redditor? Oh, yeah. I've been oh, meet my for... husband, the nerd. Oh, my God. Well, I don't, here's the thing I don't do social, ma- uh, social media, right? I, I, I just think, you know, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Twitter or Instagram, any of this stuff, you know, because Orwellian concerns about being herded into camps based on posts that I've made in, 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 in the past. So Reddit was, you know, Reddit was, was where you could catch up with that content. And frankly, it's where most of the content comes from that appears 48 hours later uh, on other social places. And it's, a, it's also a weird form of, 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 you know, and I would use this very carefully, not, not in every subreddit, but it's a really interesting aggregator uh, of wisdom, right? You could take thoughts and you could vote them up or down. So you have this collective intelligence that goes to work on, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you're looking at, whether it's a news item or a picture of a cat, uh, you know, whatever you're interested in, it's going to get voted up or down. When that's applied to a narrative like that, you can have what usually would be like, you know, your weird friend who has this crazy theory about the show, <laughs> who, you know, no one else is listening to, all of a sudden can get voted up to the top as more people wrap their head around it. But that's fine. And that's fantastic. And it's a community. I mean, we love that. And that's incredibly gratifying that there is a portion of the community that's looking at that. Where it got a little complicated on this one, two things. One, you know, you've had a lot of kind of quote-unquote theory shows. We really didn't want to make a theory show. It's kind of inevitable with this level of complexity. To Lisa's point, we just thought we had a fantastic opportunity here to tell a story from the perspective of someone with unique relationship with time and narrative. But that said, there are reveals in the narrative. Um, And I think our hope was that you would start asking that question in episode seven, and then it would become, you know, uh, that it would sort of grow as as a feeling. But we also knew, and this is another thing that for me is 
is vitally important. You can't just pull the rug out from the audience. You have to layer these things in there so that even if you're not necessarily immediately clocking the dissonance of, wait, they just cut from William and Logan said, I can't wait to see who you know who you become, and then it cuts immediately to the man in black. Well, it's all in there deliberately, and it's all in there to gently feed uh, a perception amongst the entire audience, right? So you're not mm-hmm. just writing for the people who are carefully dissecting it. You're writing it and setting it up in such a way that when you do get to the reveal, the audience doesn't reject it and go, wait, right. what, what is that? They're not remotely prepared for that piece of information. So you have to play fair with the audience. And what happened here is, the sort of theories of our show, and you know, a lot of a lot of theory shows where the theories don't really add up to much, or they add up to things that are going to come so many seasons from now that it's perfectly fine to speculate about them. Or as with the first season of True Detective, there are a lot of theories that were set in that kind of like metaphysical realm that didn't necessarily connect immediately to the narrative that you were watching. But it was perfectly fine to speculate about that and then carry that speculation out of Reddit and into uh, sort of, you know, uh, more mainstream pieces. Here, uh, all the theories <laughs> were connected to things that we were doing. And so they sort of wound up in, in headline items. Um, and that was a bummer because you want people, you know, the, the Reddit community is, is, is fantastic, but it represents literally 1% of our audience. It's 150,000 people were being watched by 12 million. And you want the audience, all of those people in that community are self-selecting. They're there because that's how they want to engage with the show. And they're very careful about laying out spoilers for people. It was where people were picking it up and sort of running the word timelines and headlines where you thought, oh, that's a shame because that probably is going to impact someone's, uh, you know, um, experience of, of watching the show. So, listen, it's a great problem to have, to have this many people <laughs> thinking about and reflecting on your show. We're, 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 we're very excited about that. If we're talking about speculation, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask, are we going to see more of the world, both of, of the park or parks, plural, and or the outside world in season two? I mean, I think we've already teased a little bit of um, of the broader the broader world and park there. And honestly, I, I I would just put my faith in the host that um, they're pretty crafty and they're pretty powerful and their intellect is growing and growing. I, I would imagine that at least one ultimately gets a gets a bigger look at the world. Who and when? I I'm not quite sure yet. Well, you are sure. You just okay. Fine. I can't say. Uh. <laughs> And just to follow up on that, the the production of the show has been talked about a bit and how there was a little bit of a rocky path to getting season one of Westworld made. And I'm curious if there's anything, any lessons you took away from season one and things that you're, you want to do differently in season two. Yeah, 100%. We, we talked about a little bit earlier. We're, we're going to write all of them first and then go block shoot it. I mean, that's the approach that several HBO shows have taken. That's how they did True Detective. That's how they do... Game of Thrones, uh, for the most part, and and that really feels to us like the the best approach. It is more ambitious than regular TV. You really can't sort of spin all these plates at once. Uh, and so we're writing now. We'll go back into production next year. We'll air in 2018. And and actually, that was something we'd started saying to the network when we were shooting episode two. We said, you know. We know in TV it's, it's normal that you're on the air every year. I got used to that in broadcast for several years. But, you know. It's not TV, it's HBO. Ah. <laughs> so are you, are you going to be spending basically a full year making this TV show? Is that about the amount of time that it would take to make, say, a, a season? In writing and production and code? No, we've been, in for, we've been in for a couple of months already. Oh, wow. We're airing in 2018. This is more like a... Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a monster. <laughs> Hardest working duo yeah. in showbiz. In three years, so we're. <laughs> doesn't look like I we know. The next time we have a vacation, maybe Westworld will actually exist. <laughs> <laughs> the show is famously, you know, has this massive budget, and I'm curious: is there one area of the show where that is being used most? and kind of how that breaks down? I can give a general sense that, you know, what's great about making this show and one of the reasons why we knew HBO was the right partner is from from Game of Thrones and that commitment to practical production, meaning you're going out and you're you're shooting in the real place. We went out and shot in Utah. That's a key part Mm -hmm. of of the experience from us. And, you know, people are notoriously tight-lipped about budgets. I would hasten to point out we are far from the most expensive show uh, that's, uh, that's been made in the last couple of years as TV cr- grows into something else, which is very exciting to see it happen. 
Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, this has you. been great. You guys are great. And congratu- congratulations on finishing a very successful first season. Oh, thank you. Lovely talking to you both. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's ARIA. The ARIA is a space for one of us to take a few minutes to talk to you all directly about something going on in TV right now that we feel passionately about. Jen's going to give us this week's installment of the ARIA. Jen, take it away. Westworld was a lot of things in its first season, and one of them was a puzzle. The HBO drama became one of the most talked about shows this fall because so many viewers enjoyed picking it apart, trying on new ways to explain its maze, mysteries, and sometimes solving those mysteries before the show could reveal its own answers. But as Westworld deconstruction became more and more of a presence on social media, platforms like Reddit, and recap comment threads, some TV writers expressed disenchantment with the way fans were choosing to engage. The more we treat the show like a game, the more the danger rises that we're losing sight of the full experience, Liz Shannon Miller wrote in an IndieWire piece with the headline, Westworld, Why We Need to Stop Obsessing About Fan Theories. In another piece entitled Online Theorizing Ruined Too Many TV Shows in 2016, Vox's Todd Vanderwerf wrote, On shows like Mr. Robot and Westworld, which are about trying to understand the discombobulating nature of reality itself, shouldn't there be more to the story than pinning down the plot on corkboard like a butterfly, the better to examine it? Our obsession with outguessing our television shows is robbing them of some of their power. Other essays with similar perspectives. I ruined Westworld with fan theories and learned my lesson for season two. Or if you're focused on solving Westworld's mysteries, you're missing the point. We're all over the interwebs, which prompted Joanna Robinson of Vanity Fair, who has done a solid job of exploring and explaining Westworld this season, to fire off a series of frustrated tweets. The number of articles on this subject fail to consider the joy many, many, many people find in this approach to TV consumption, she tweeted, referring to the subject of fan theorizing. She continued, And having heard personally from hundreds and hundreds of our listeners and my readers this week that they love the community that has grown around this approach to TV watching, I know that it brings joy to many. To say Westworld didn't actively court this kind of mystery box speculation is deeply hilarious and way off the mark. And to tell thousands and thousands of people that they're enjoying TV wrong is arrogant and condescending. End of tweet. The era of streaming content and endless TV has made it clearer than ever that we each have the freedom to consume and discuss our television in the way that brings us the most satisfaction. Some people get a huge kick out of trying to stay two or three steps ahead of showrunners, acting like the TV-watching equivalent of those online commenters who show up just to say, first, if that is literally all you're doing, I would argue that's a limited way to appreciate storytelling. But, to Joanna Robinson's point, I think some people who enjoy the sport of fan theorizing are doing more than that. They're considering text and subtext. They're rewatching episodes, examining the visual choices made by the filmmakers, and considering what they mean. They're paying really close attention, which is what, ideally, we want TV viewers to do. And as Robinson notes, they're often finding a community of like-minded overanalyzers in the process. I have admitted, and will admit again, that I never experienced Westworld in this way for a host, host, get it, of different reasons. The Western setting never totally appealed to me, I felt the character development was lacking, and the sometimes ponderous self-serious tone prevented me from feeling fully emotionally invested in what was happening. But I understand the lure of fan theorizing and the joys it can bring. The first TV show I regularly recapped and rabbit-holed over was Lost, a series that has been compared often to Westworld. Back in the 2000s, when I and other members of the unofficial Oceanic 815 fan club would devote hours, and I really do mean hours, to dissecting what was happening on the apparently movable island, we were constantly throwing out ridiculous ideas and trading furious IMs about why it might be significant that Ben Linus owns a copy of Philip K. Dick's Vallis. A co-worker of mine at the Washington Post, where I worked during the pre-Reddit, very early social media lost days, once forwarded me an email from a friend of his that contained some thoughts about a season five episode. Those thoughts were so lengthy, detailed, and impressive that I saved the contents of the email in a Word document. Single-spaced, it is three pages long. If I hadn't already been married in 2009, there's a real chance I would have wanted to marry this person. My point is that fan theorizing does not have to be bad, and I suspect practically every writer who wrote one of those stop theorizing about Westworld think pieces would agree. Like almost any exercise in life, it can be done in a way that is empty and superficial, or it can be done in a way that contains multitudes. When a show truly contains multitudes, and I'm still figuring out whether or not Westworld does, 
that also enriches the depth of the theorizing. I guess what I'm saying is, watch Westworld or any show, however you want. You and me were humans, and at least to my knowledge, not being programmed by anyone named Robert Ford or Arnold. If treating a TV show like a puzzle is what activates your mind to consider it more deeply, then go for it. But, if I may be so bold as to make a recommendation, I would say that it's worthwhile to engage in that puzzle-solving process in a deep, meaningful way. Don't be the guy or girl who solves the equation fastest just for the sake of putting the pencil down first. Be the fan theorizer that the creators of TV shows and critics, and hopefully you too, wish to see in the world. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at GazellaFight. I'm Matt Zoller Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.